It amazes me how some of these little Hollywood numbers with dreamy looks and a dead pan are getting away with it. Joan Blondell. Chapter 6. Some people apply a battle strategy to filmmaking. Many directors are able to extemporize on Sun Tzu's 13 Principles of War. I wasn't very familiar with Eastern philosophy, even though Cooper Daniels had sent me to the Bodhi Tree bookstore on Melrose for a stack of treatises in vogue with Disney suits and CAA foot soldiers. But half of my family was Italian, and I did remember distinctly the words of Machiavelli, to know in war how to recognize an opportunity and seize it is better than anything else. It took me several days to formulate a plan. I fancied I was giving myself an intensive tutorial in logistics, and it felt fabulous. New information seemed to gel while I did the most routine things, chopping fruit or scrambling eggs for Jake's breakfast, driving from Beverly Hills to USC, Each time an aspect of my future seemed to drop into place, my vision sharpened. My hearing became more acute. I could distinguish individual scents where previously all I detected was smog. As I drove downtown one day in the mighty Renault to meet Polly, I thought to myself, this was what my mother was talking about when she said someone was firing on all cylinders. Whether or not I would be able to control the engine remained to be seen. If not, well, I was still only 29 and not at all unpleasant to look at. Especially if I got a decent haircut and could manage to put on a little mascara every morning. Even Machiavelli must have had a hard-on for somebody once in his life. I wondered why he hadn't written a discourse on beauty as a means of control. It was a fallback position, but at least I wasn't afraid to explore it. Yet, as it turns out, I didn't have to. What I told Polly was this. I was ready to leave USC. I had taken a job assisting an up-and-coming director with a view to being placed in editorial. And this is where Polly stopped tapping her pen on the table. I intended to negotiate an agreement with Dave that would keep our marriage intact. What the hell are you talking about? Polly said as she got up from the conference table and shut the door. Listen, I'm a more valuable property right now, married to a movie star. It'll get me jobs. Well, it has gotten me a job. Jake is going to have a normal childhood, or as normal as I can make it, with two parents in the same house. All Dave cares about is keeping his money and getting laid. When Jake turns 18, Dave can dissolve the unit without granting me a settlement. We'll share a domicile. Whatever he wants to do in terms of female company, he'll have to do it outside our house. His marital status will protect him and his bank account for at least 13 years from young idiots like me. Polly calculated. You are aware you're effectively cutting yourself off from millions. Yes, you are aware? I think what Natalie called me was egregiously stupid, but I think other things are more important. Not many egregiously stupid people come up with a prenup postnup as a solution to divorce. Polly was irritated, but she also wanted to represent, truly represent my interests, 
Now I wanted to stay married. I glanced out the window. It was one of those autumn days in the low hundreds and so blazing hot it blew the top off of Los Angeles. No scummy brown line on the horizon. No obscuring marine layer like June. Clear, bright blue skies. Gleaming silver planes banking towards LAX. Sharply delineated office towers and the sweeping, elevated arcs of the freeway. I was certain that if Polly's office was a few floors higher and faced just a little bit more northwest, that I could see the ocean mirroring the sun up into space like a shining beacon. God, I love this town, I said. Are you sure? asked Polly. I'm sure, I replied. All right, I'll approach opposing counsel and arrange a meeting with both parties in attendance. Do you have any stipulations other than those you've outlined? Like what? I asked. Accounts in trust? I shook my head. Marriage counseling? Definitely not. How about chemical castration? What do I care? Okay, Polly said. I'll see what I can do. Oh, oh, wait. I want all child care providers to be male. A few short weeks later, Cooper Daniels' film was greenlit. In the early stages of production, the producers were in place, male, but the line producer, male, and the production manager, male, and the production coordinator, variable, had yet to come aboard. Once they did, the rest of the staff would follow. The casting director, the production designer, the costume designer, the director of photography, the editor, locations, decorators, props, electricians, grips, sound, illustrators, greensmen, special effects, stunts, catering. Their crews would swell to well over a hundred. The ranks were split between above the line and below the line. Above the line was the money, producers, actors, directors, and writers. Although, in terms of hierarchy, the writers were the red-headed stepchildren of filmmaking. Below the line were all the professions involved in translating the story onto the screen. These were the hundreds whose main objective was principal photography. Of those hundreds, a scattering would be female, mostly in wardrobe and makeup. Make of that what you will. In the meantime, the office... It was a relative ghost town, and I was busy becoming familiar with the ins and outs of pre-production, which mostly involved running errands and fielding phone calls. I had developed a nice rhythm and a certain prescience. Polly called my particular knack for knowing who would ring next, star-fucked synchronicity. When I received a call from Dave informing me he was personally withdrawing our son from that pansy-assed hippie private preschool in Santa Monica. Jake would go to school in the district, Hawthorne, Horace Mann, and then Beverly Hills High. Sounds good to me, honey. What? Dave barked down the telephone line. I said, that sounds good, honey, I repeated. Shepard Carlyle had coached me on how to be a peach. He assured me that if there was anything he understood deeply, it was the male psyche. He instructed me to pepper my speech with endearments, to convey agreement sweetly with all spousal requests, and then do exactly what I wanted.
I could hear the confused staccato stutter of my formerly estranged husband as he stamped around his apartment. He had been confused and bewildered by the proffered reconciliation. Now our lawyers were ironing out details, and he secretly rejoiced, or so he thought, at the victory inherent in his second family staying intact and the significant dollar savings it entailed. My new attitude, acknowledging and accepting of the Italian male prerogative, struck him as very old world and very obliging, hence the confusion. By the way, Dave, did you get a chance to look at those folders I messengered over? What folders? He growled suspiciously. I pasted up pictures of, of the houses I thought you'd be interested in. Anything look good to you? Ah, that Truesdale Estate 1950s hill crap. It's just depressing. I want something in the flats. Something with character. I was aware character translated to a building with either beamed ceilings or paneled wainscoting. Dave wanted something that reminded him of the estates of New England. Something with a front stairway and a back stairway. Looking for an easier lifestyle, I resolved to find the rare one-story estate with the requisite woodwork. You got it. I'll have the new paste-ups to you by dinner. Gotta go now, hon. I'll talk to you later. Mwah! I was thinking as I hung up the phone. I was thinking about that hardware store on Santa Monica Boulevard. And then I thought about those orange rubber gloves. And then I thought of Madame du Berry and her colleague, so to speak, Madame de Pompadour. Old Louis XV had a habit of befriending his mistresses, especially if they proved to be invaluable advisors, even if he quickly stopped sleeping with them, like he did with Madame de Pompadour. Madame du Berry outlived the king and had her head chopped off at the age of 50. Madame de Pompadour predeceased Louis and died at 40 of tuberculosis. I was thinking about male-female relationships and when sex appeal becomes a power play when two women, probably about the same age as I was, appeared on the other side of my desk. They both rocked the same look. Tousled, honey-blonde hair that fell to the middle of their backs, chenille sweaters that grazed their belly buttons, a band of tanned skin at their waistlines, shredded jeans, no mascara, no eyeliner, and bright red berry lipstick. They weren't twins, but they dressed like it. I assumed they were going to read for the same part, although casting wasn't on yet. One of them spoke. Hi. Hi, I responded brightly. I remembered Shepard's advice on being the perfect assistant. Thus far, he had spent three summers on a set as a production assistant. Quite recently, he had taken the DGA trainees exam along with 1,500 other aspirants and placed in the 95th percentile. That year, the Directors Guild of America had called from the 98th percentile and above. The questions on the DGA exam all boiled down to this, break, borrow, or steal. The show must go on. Shepard was particularly galled that he had incorrectly answered a question having to do with a locked car that was in the path of production. The correct answer, he found out later to his shame, was to smash in the offending car's window and push it out of the way. 
a nice boy from Athens, Georgia, breaking into cars. His mentor was a clubbing second assistant director who particularly liked young gay men from USC or UCLA to lock down the set or run at his direction. He urged Shep to take the test again after another summer toughened up on one of his crews. All that said, this is what Shepard gleaned from his experience. Be courteous at all times. Never get flustered. Address everyone as they introduce themselves. Always call your boss as they wish. Drop the East Coast crust. Ma'am, sir, mister, or missus is way too formal, honey. Never complain. Never offer your opinion. Always, always say yes. Yeah, I'm patience, said one of the blondes. She turned slightly to indicate the other. And this is peace, and we're here to see Cooper. Glad to see you. Can I get you some coffee? Maybe some orange juice? Or would you like some water? No, and no caffeine, said Patience. Whoa, no caffeine. Please have a seat while you wait. I beckoned to an upholstered couch with an exposed steel frame and two side chairs. Patience and Peace sat in unison on the couch. Peace had restless hands and kept tucking a lock of hair behind her right ear. Patience spoke. Uh, we're technical advisors. Fantastic, I said. There was nothing technical looking about them. Cooper Daniels, my new boss, was exercising the director's right and was fervidly rewriting, word by word, page by page, a script the studio had paid a cool million for in competitive bidding. The script was both impressionistic and formulaic. Drug addict robs bank, flees law, and descends into madness via illicit substances. Karma will out. Patience and peace looked like they lived in Venice, Venice, California, a kind of trendy, grungy beach town with a boardwalk, bars on all the windows. Technical advisors? They certainly weren't cops or bankers or security experts. It suddenly dawned on me. They probably were drug dealers. Just give me one minute, I said, picking up the phone. Mr. Daniels? My East Coast crust was baked on hard. I have patience and peace here. I nodded at them and smiled. Or were they hookers? There were conflicting accounts about Madame Duberry's early career, but what is certainly a fact is that she met Jean-Baptiste Duberry at a brothel. Thanks for waiting. I opened the door to the director's office. Please go right in. I popped my head in the door after them. Anything else, Mr. Daniels? No. And stop calling me Mr. Daniels. You're creeping me out, Billy. Very good, I hesitated. Sir. Cooper Daniels frowned and waved me away. He couldn't have meant for me to call him by his first name, whatever Shep had told me. Besides, he was a little too attractive to call Cooper. Hey, Coop. Cooper, can I dial that number for you? Pardon me, Mr. Daniels. May I just rest my cheek on your collarbone? None of those notions seemed quite right. Damn, but his eyes were this lucent kind of brown, like an ice cube in a glass of coffee. I, who liked my boundaries, still got caught up in minute details. But I felt I was generally 
well, almost delivering on the big strokes of Shep's rules of Hollywood cordiality. I closed Cooper's door and went back to my desk, where I first called my realtor and then Shepard Carlyle. Hello, personal savior, I sang into the telephone. I'm calling you from the office. Hey there, Billy. Why aren't you working? I loved his deep Georgia drawl. I am working like two jobs. Feels like a million jobs. Hey, what's a technical advisor? Are they blonde? Shepard inquired. Yes. Hmm, Shep commented. Ask me later, sugar. However, later found me stuck in stop-and-go traffic on Sunset. I was trying to make it to Hamburger Hamlet in time to meet Dave and Jake for dinner. For Jake, a cheeseburger, no onion, no tomato, no lettuce, no pickle, ketchup only, and fries was a near mystical experience. I wedged Le Car into street parking and ran up the stairs to the hamburger joint with the interior and aesthetic of a steakhouse. Dave and Jake were seated in a corner. Jake was halfway through his dinner. I slid in next to our son and kissed him on top of his head. Jake ducked his head in embarrassment, and his cheeks reddened. Say hello to your mother, Jake, reprimanded Dave. Hi, Mom, Jake piped. Dave and his golfing buddies at the Bel Air Country Club were in agreement on the seventh hole that afternoon. In their opinion, I, his young wife, was going through a phase and I'd soon tire of my independence, or my job, just as I had tired of the short stint at USC and the separation. In the meantime, Dave intended to humor me. Yeah, that's it, humor. He leaned across the table and kissed my cheek. How's my favorite career girl? I could smell a pre-dinner cocktail on Dave's breath. If he didn't watch it, his famous looks would be obscured by the bloat of alcohol. Great, sweetie. I took a new folder of house photos out of my gargantuan bag. It reminded me of what I used to carry diapers in. But instead of nylon, this one was leather, and in it were documents, storyboards, scripts, and a chunky mobile phone. It weighed a ton. I set the folder in front of my husband. Aren't you busy? He flipped open the file. Ah, oh, Billy, it's so dark in here. I pushed a candle toward the file and took a pair of reading glasses from my purse and handed them to my husband. Dave pushed the file in front of Jake. All right, my man. Why don't you pick out a house for you and me and Mommy? Jake, his hands around a hamburger bun, asked, Really? I nodded. Game on. Jake set his dinner down. He peered carefully at each of three choices. He placed his ketchup-licked thumb down on a Gerard Colcord design. It was a sprawling, one-story white clapboard house with a picket fence twined with red roses, boasting colonial touches in a tennis court and a pool. It looked like something from one of his picture books. Good work, Jake, I crowed. How long before we live in this house? Jake asked. Dave put on the reading glasses he was handed and looked down at his son's pick. He looked at me approvingly, over the top of the lenses. There was a wood-paneled library, and the living room had a fireplace so big he could stand in it. How about a 30-day escrow? Dave suggested. Jakey will be there in a month. 
and get rid of that thing you're driving. Mercedes makes a station wagon. That would be good, opined Dave. I assumed, based on the generosity of spirit evidenced by Dave's statements, that our joint bank accounts had been unfrozen. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.